The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 5. The House That Fred Built So it was that I found myself, a blur of a fortnight later, on a train to London, going to seek my fortune. My father's solemn goodbye and firm handshake were accompanied by a rather smug and knowing smirk, as though he had no doubt at all that I would shortly be scuttling back to Cambridge with my tail between my legs, begging to be allowed to make beds again. My mother and brother were utterly unperturbed by my departure. When I told my mother I was going to London to make a name for myself, she greeted the announcement with a casual, "'Bye-bye then, dear!' as if I'd just said I was going to the market to buy eggs, and then turned straight back to the four square feet of pastry she was just then engaged in rolling flat. Lance barely looked up from polishing the master's shoes to grunt the following resonant and emotional valediction, which has remained imprinted upon my memory ever since. Off to be a clown then, eh? See you when you grow up. To begin with, I hadn't given much thought to my conversation on the first night with the dapper gentleman in the theatre bar. On the last night, though, at a sumptuous drinks party for the cast, hosted by the rotter himself, to which I was graciously invited to add myself to the serving staff, I fished the mystery gent's card out of my back pocket and showed it to Mr Luscombe, whose eyes popped out on stalks. Metaphorically, of course. If he'd been able to do it for real, he'd have been sure of a living on the halls for the rest of his days. "'Good Lord!' he exclaimed. "'You know who this is, don't you?' I shrugged. "'It's Carno! Fred Carno! Of Carno's Speechless Comedians! "'Well, that's what they used to call them, back when they weren't allowed to speak. (laughs) "'He's one of the biggest—no, what am I saying? "'He's the biggest name in the music hall!' "'Once he'd recovered himself, a couple of brandies and a breath of fresh air later, "'Mr Luscombe explained his pop-eyed excitement. "'He was a great enthusiast of the music hall, if a secret one, "'as his parents and his po-faced brother would never have approved "'of his wallowing amongst the lowlife of London, as they called it. "'He reckoned he'd seen all the great names, just names to me then, "'as he ticked them off for me on his fingers. "'George Roby, the Prime Minister of Mirth, "'Little Titch, Gus Elan, Wilkie Bard, Vesta Tilly and Marie Lloyd I saw once. Marvellous fun. Carno, though, and Luscombe prodded me in the chest to emphasise the point, Carno is the non-pareil. Why? What does he do? I asked, not knowing what a non-pareil was, but imagining some kind of novelty act, possibly involving animals. Not he himself, though he is the mastermind. His company performs his pieces, little plays that will make you laugh and will make you cry. The last Carno turn I saw was called The Bailiff, with Fred Kitchen. When he offers his arm to the poor woman who has lost everything, there's not a dry eye in the house, I assure you. And yet when he and his assistant, Meredith, are trying to gain entry to a house, all his little schemes and plots had the place in tucks. Kitchen, do you see, would say, you do such and such, and then I do so and so, and then, Meredith, we're in! Ha ha! He seemed surprised that I did not immediately fall about laughing at this. Meredith, we're in! he cried again. That's the recurring phrase, do you see? And and, and now you tell me that Carno has offered you a start. Why, man, what are you waiting for? Mr Luscombe dictated a letter for me to send to the great Fred Carno, and he was even more wretchedly nervous than I was as we watched the college's daily postal arrivals for a reply. When it came, a few days later, the envelope contained only another business card, exactly like the one I had been given in the theatre bar, except that on the reverse side, in a firm and confident hand, a single word was inscribed in capital letters. "'Come!' Luscombe was thrilled and heartily pooh-poohed my misgivings. "'Was not the address right there on the card? "'Just take a cab from the station to Cold Harbour Lane and... "'Meredith, you're in!' "'The run down to London was but a short hop by train, "'but I felt like I'd landed on another planet as I stepped onto the platform "'and looked around at the terminus. 
Huge black iron arches vaulted way overhead, like a monstrous satanic parody of the college chapel's ceiling. Everywhere folk rushed, trotted, skittered and ambled about their various business, gentlemen peering urgently at their pocket watches, small gaggles of children tugging their nannies towards an excursion train, and here and there new arrivals with little piles of luggage looking as lost and intimidated as I felt. I wandered out into the street, where huge brick buildings thrust up four, five, six storeys high in all directions, and suddenly good old Cambridge, which had always felt so stately and grand to me, seemed like a cramped and claustrophobic warren. Traffic of all kinds clattered, clopped, popped, crapped and wheezed this way and that. It was dizzying, bewildering, too much to take in. I felt a bit of Dutch courage was called for, and I was a grown-up making his way in the world after all, so I nudged my way through the door of a public house called the Railway Men, which was full, pretty much as advertised, with railway men. By mid-afternoon, with a couple of pints, and then a couple more, on board, I was sufficiently confident to ask for directions to Camberwell, and eventually I found my way to the street specified on Mr Carno's card. When I finally turned the corner, I had to stop for a moment to take it in. I can't be certain, but I think I may have pushed my hat back in order to scratch my head in amazement. A row of houses up a short side street seemed to have been knocked together or combined into one enormous premises with huge double doors at the front. These were flung open wide, presumably to let the summer air circulate so passers-by could see that inside it was an absolute hive of activity. Outside, no fewer than four double-decked motor omnibuses were parked in a row along the curb, big painted signs on the sides bearing the legend Fred Carno's Comics, where you might ordinarily expect to see Bovril or Pear's Soap. I had reached the Fun Factory. And just at that moment, dozens of people of all shapes and sizes began to issue forth. Dapper young gentlemen, elegant young ladies all dressed to kill, some of the ladies flourishing brightly coloured parasols. They spilled down the short slope and out onto the road, laughing, chattering, greeting one another with exaggerated good humour, and began to pack themselves into the omnibuses until the vehicle's aching suspensions creaked. On and on they came, a hundred, two hundred of them and then some even more affluent-looking middle-aged chaps strode confidently towards waiting broughams, and handful of fabulously dressed women glided miraculously after them, then a couple of stragglers ahoy-hoyed and skipped up onto the bus's backboards, until the short street was empty of pedestrians, save for a few slack-jawed gawkers like myself. Suddenly, all at once, the heaving convoy puffed and chuffed and popped and clopped and wobbled into motion, dividing at the end of the street as half went left and half right, with a few local children who had come to wave these fantastical creatures off, trotting along in their wake, bowling their hoops along the pavement. And then there was silence. I took a deep breath, tiptoed tentatively up to the big double doors and peered inside, where I saw the damnedest thing. You'll hardly believe me when I tell you, but there was an ocean liner in there, just sort of looming up, large as life, the sort of thing that made me wish I had half a bottle of some sort of cheap booze in my hand so I could look down at it accusingly before forswearing the demon drink forever. In the gloom at the back of the building I saw a light, and there was a little office with windows in its rather wobbly-looking walls. The door was ajar, and a man in shirt-sleeves was hunched over a desk inside. I went over and tapped lightly on the glass window in the door. "'Excuse me, sir?' The man looked up at me, a harassed expression on his face. He was around forty, I suppose, losing his hair and his temper. "'Finally! Here, take these,' he said, striding over and thrusting a fistful of papers into my hands. "'What? What are they?' "'When it's the bills, the bill matter, of course. What are you waiting for? Off you go. Chop, chop!' I had no idea where to go, of course, so I just stood there like a goof, and the man seemed to gather that he'd made a mistake. He looked at me quizzically. "'Are you not the printer's boy?' 
No, I beg your pardon, sir. I'm Arthur Dando. The man sighed heavily, then grabbed his papers back from me. Arthur Dando, eh? Is that name supposed to mean something to me? Come on, lad, I'm a busy man. Tell me your business and let me get on. I ventured into his office, where a fresh-faced youth I hadn't noticed before was standing in the corner, smoking a cigarette. This one watched me coolly as I fumbled in my pockets for Carno's card, which had temporarily gone astray. "'Well, come on, spit it out,' the harassed older chap said. "'Um, right, yes,' I stuttered. "'The thing is, I'm looking for Mr Fred Carno.' "'Are you now?' "'Um, yes, I am.' "'Well, good news,' the fellow said, burrowing in another pile of papers, looking for something. "'You found him!' My beer-fuddled brain frankly struggled with this. This was clearly not the same man that I'd met in Cambridge. "'You mean you're...?' I said. "'No, no, 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 not me!' The man said, I'm Alf Reeves, if it's any of your business. That's Mr Carno over there. Reeves pointed at the smoking youth, who gazed at me inquiringly down his nose. He was quite short and had to lean back quite a way to achieve this. Now I was even more baffled. I think I may have felt something go pop in my cranium. You're... I managed. Yes, that's right, I'm Fred Carno. What do you want? The youth sneered. I found my tongue and explained haltingly about the conversation I'd had with the shinily shod man in the theatre bar and how I'd come to London from Cambridge to take him up on his offer. "'Oh, well, that's just marvellous, that is. That's just dandy,' he said, in a manner which quite definitely suggested that it was neither marvellous nor dandy. Then he aimed a vicious kick at a waste paper bin, sending it skidding across the room. Alf Reeves sighed, ran his fingers through what Harry had left, and narrowed his eyes at me. If I had sixpence for every time some youth strolled in here and claimed that Mr Carno himself had told them to come and present themselves to me for a career in the musical theatre, do you know how rich I'd be, eh? Do you have any idea? I felt so deflated suddenly that I could only shrug. Well, not that rich, actually. I'd have about four bob. It doesn't happen all that often. So, you met the governor then, did you? Well, well. Uh, what did he have to say to you when you met him? Actually, he said I had it, I ventured. "'And what, might I ask, do you intend to do with it?' Reeves inquired. "'Are you going to eat it? Wear it? Sleep in it? Do a little dance with it? "'It smells like you might already have drunk most of it.' "'I just smiled at him, a thin, watery smile, like an idiot. "'Reeves sat back slowly and sighed, the weary sigh of a man who has been left in charge "'while whoever is supposed to be making the decisions is off having fun somewhere else. "'All right, all right,' he said, suddenly bursting to life again "'and starting to scribble a note to himself on a scrap of paper.' I'll set you on as a super. No harm in that. At this, Reeves glanced up at the youth as if for his approval and got a surly shrug in response. The pay's five bob a week, Reeves went on. I'll have you back here tomorrow first thing to make a start. Now then, where do you live? Um, Cambridge, I said. But you're not planning to go back and forth to Cambridge every day, are you? In town, I mean. Where are you living in town, in London? Well, actually, I haven't got anywhere to go, I admitted. Reeves turned to the smoking youth, who was still inexplicably seething at me as though I'd pinched his lunch or something. Freddy, you're heading down to Streatham, aren't you? Take Arthur here to Clara Bell's. Tell her he'll be paid at the end of the week. Now run along, there's good lads. I've a thousand other things to be doing. The youth Freddy closed his eyes and sighed, as though he'd rather tackle anything else but the onerous chore of taking care of me. Then he grabbed a jacket and hat and stalked out. I caught up with him out on the street. He was striding along unnecessarily quickly, I thought. I really couldn't imagine what I'd done to offend him and fell anxiously into step alongside him. So, I ventured, after a minute or two of sulky perambulation, I really did meet Fred Carno in Cambridge then. Sounds like it, doesn't it? This Freddy said, a grim set to his jaw. Well, why did you say you were Fred Carno then? I'm Fred Carno Jr., that's it. See, 
he suddenly burst out. You met the governor, my father, the famous Fred Carnot. You follow? I nodded. I followed. We strode on towards Brixton Hill. I work with Mr Reeves on the administration side, Freddie Jr. eventually offered, managing to make administration sound like cleaning out sewers with a toothbrush. So usually, when a stranger walks in off the street and asks to see Fred Carno, it's me he's looking for, do you see? Muggins, the dog's body. Suddenly, Freddy spotted the tram for Streatham going past us and darted after it at a gallop. I followed suit and managed to leap on board just as it was setting off again. I found Freddy inside and collapsed into the seat opposite him, and couldn't help noticing that he looked somewhat disappointed that I'd made it. Clara Bell's house was actually very conveniently situated for someone working in the theatrical business, particularly for Mr Fred Carno's senior's company. The late-night trams ran down from the West End through Brixton onto Streatham High Road until all hours, so that performers could be sure of making it at home whenever their various engagements finished. This meant that this whole part of the world, Brixton, Streatham, Balham, had a significant thespian population. Freddie didn't say a word more to me, but I had plenty to look at as we went along. The outskirts of London seemed to sprawl forever, an endless repeating sequence of shop fronts, gardens, churches and green open spaces. The tram stopped alongside a wide green common, and I was watching some carriage drivers leading their horses to a row of stone troughs to drink, when I suddenly spotted Freddy striding away over the grass. He'd slipped off the swine without saying anything. Well, I grabbed my bag and scurried after him. I could have done without having to rush, as it seemed to stir up the beer I'd had with the railway men, which was sloshing around inside me. Halfway across the common, with Freddy hightailing it into the distant yonder, the whole place began to spin like a crazy whirligig, buildings and trees flying past my ale-addled eyes, and I had to sit in a heap on the grass until it all calmed down. By the time I was able to stand again, Freddy had made it over to a three-storey townhouse and was ringing the bell. I caught up with him before the door was opened, and I leaned heavily against the porch for a moment. As I did so, I glanced over at the house next door. Like the bells, it was three storeys high, with steps leading down to a basement entrance, as well as up to the front door, and suddenly I was half sure I saw a pale face, a woman's face, watching me from the window on the first floor. Then the door opened and there stood Clara Bell, a cheerful little woman with her sleeves rolled up, wiping her hands on her apron. "'Hello, Freddy!' she cried, inexplicably pleased to see the lad. "'What's this? Surprise visit?' "'Delivery,' Freddy muttered, wafting his hand at me. "'Are you not coming in for a cup of tea?' Freddy just shook his head, turned on his heel and left, the charmer. Clarabel seemed remarkably forgiving of this behaviour. "'Well,' she said, clapping her hands together, "'Alf sent you, I suppose, did he? You'd better come in. I'm Clara. You've just missed Charlie, I'm afraid. He's doing three a day. I suppose you can have Ronnie's room. He won't be needing it any more. You can give me a hand putting his stuff into his trunk.' As she chatted away, Clara led me in, along the hallway and downstairs into the scullery, where she bustled around getting out cups and saucers and a teapot. "'We'll have some tea first, shall we?' "'Arthur, Arthur Dando. "'Pleased to meet you, Arthur. "'And this,' she exclaimed as a tiny whirlwind sped in from the garden and thumped into her midriff, "'is Edie. "'Say good afternoon to Arthur, Edie.' The little dynamo turned out to be a four-year-old girl, clutching a doll in her little arms. She turned shy at the sight of me and wouldn't show her face, nor would she let her mother go about her business either, so we all stood together there as I told Clara how I came to be there. "'Aha!' she said. "'I expect young Freddy was thrilled to bits to see you, wasn't he?' "'Well, he hid it quite well if he was,' I said. "'Well,' she said cheerfully, "'you've landed on your feet, I'm sure. "'There's hundreds of young lads up the corner "'who'd give their right arm to join Carnos. "'Not that he's much on the lookout for boys with one arm, "'as far as I know.' "'Well now, since you've come from Alf, I'll trust you for your rent until you get paid on Saturday night,' she went on, 
but just bear in mind that Charlie, my husband, works for Carnos and is one of Alf Reeves' oldest friends. So if you come up short, we'll just get our money directly from your wages the next week before you even see him. Understood? After a cup of tea and a slice of rather heavy fruitcake, I was shown up to a room on the top floor. There was a single bed, bowed in the middle, together with a wardrobe and a chest of drawers which were stuffed, sort of half full, actually, as though he'd gone away on a trip, with some fellow's belongings. This was poor Ronnie's room, Clara said rather wistfully. Such a shame. She tugged a trunk out from under the bed and began to fold poor Ronnie's shirts, trousers and socks and pile them inside. I was wondering what poor Ronnie might say if he were to come back and find me in his bed with all his belongings packed away. So he's definitely not coming back then, I said, passing her a pair of rather battered slippers. Clara shook her head sadly. Oh no, I should say not, which was all I was going to get on that subject. I thought I saw a glimpse of your neighbour when I arrived earlier, I said, a pale lady watching me from the first floor window. Clara sucked a loud breath between her teeth and began shaking her head again. Poor woman, she said, poor, poor woman. And with that she left me alone in the room, to the rather gothic accompaniment of a loud thunderclap from outside that shook the glass in the window frames. I looked at my new home, which then began to spin slowly. That slice of cake wasn't sitting very well on all the beer, or else the nervous tension of my unpromising welcome at the fun factory was making itself felt. I sat heavily on the bed, and noticed for the first time a brand spanking new gas fire in the fireplace, which was nice. Sitting on the floor in front of it was a bowl of water, as was the custom, to keep the room from getting too dry. I threw up in it. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Chapter 6. A Night in an English Music Hall I woke with a pounding head and the dim recollection that I was to start work that day and that I was to be a super, whatever that was. A super, eh? Not too shabby? Clara furnished me with some breakfast, not that I could manage much, and I was formally introduced to young Edie's dolly, whose name, rather splendidly, was Miss Churchhouse. Then the three of them, Clara, Edie and Miss Churchhouse, kindly walked me to the tram stop. When the tram car arrived, Clara called to the driver to be sure and set me off at Cult Harbour Lane, which he duly did, and I found my way back to the fun factory easily enough. It seemed deserted, especially in comparison to the hubbub of the day before. Alf Reeves blinked at me for a moment when I presented myself again at his office, but then he recalled our meeting the previous day and snapped his fingers. Dando, 
Arthur Dando, of course. Come with me. I want to show you something. He led me out into the cavernous workshop and over to the enormous construction taking on the shape of an ocean liner that I'd seen the day before. One or two lads were rolling their sleeves up and just getting to work on it, and a considerable amount of banging was coming from somewhere behind it. "'You see this, lad?' Reeve said, waving a proprietorial arm to take in the whole gigantic contraption. "'What's it look like to you?' "'Well, like part of a great ship,' Mr Reeves,' I replied. "'Precisely so. You've heard, perhaps, of the Lusitania, of the, of the Mauritania?' I had, naturally. They were the two enormous and luxurious ocean liners of the Cunard line that had been launched with a great fanfare not long before. Well, this, Reeves announced grandly, is the Won't Detain You. Ha ha! And God bless all who sail in her. He banged it with his fist, and this made a clanging sound. It's a set for our newest production, which begins next week. And it's not a wooden canvas and plasterboard fake. It's sheet metal, see? Just like the real thing. And real rivets, put together special by some laddies from the docks. The end panels are hinged, here, he strode along to a point towards the front of the ship, pointing, and as the whole thing moves slowly across the stage, the bow will fold into the wings out of sight, while the stern unfolds correspondingly on the other side, to give the illusion that we've fitted something even larger than the theatre itself onto the stage. I nodded, impressed, and Reeves led me round the back to see the platforms where the actors portraying the passengers would stand, and some fearsome-looking mechanisms concealed there. And then behind, look... We have these three hydraulic rams, which will simulate the rocking motion of the sea, backwards and forwards, side to side, port to starboard, I must remember to say, apparently, and to make the effect completely convincing. It's all mightily exciting, you agree? It's also the most expensive stage machine that we, or anyone else, have ever constructed, costing upwards of £2,000. I whistled, staggered by the sum, Reeves grimaced. So it had better damn well work or we shall be ruined. Well, not ruined exactly, but belts will be tightened. Let's just say that. We walked back round to the front and he put his arm round my shoulders. When this show opens next week, my boy, you will be a super. I'll try my best, Mr Reeves, I said, in what I hope was a business-like fashion, and waited for him to tell me what a super actually did. In the meantime, we have only a week before we shift this lot up to the Paragon and it all needs to be painted. So hang your jacket up, there's a good lad. Grab a brush and a ladder and off you go. And with that, he strode off to take care of a million other things, all of them more important than me, it seemed. Great gallon buckets of whitewash waited over by the wall of the scene dock, and there was nothing for it but to pitch in, so I put a ladder up against the flank of the mighty won't detain you, clambered up, and began to slap the paint onto the metal. To either side of me were young men engaged in the same work, holding their paintbrushes at arm's length, both of them, as if to keep themselves as far as possible from the point at which actual manual labour was occurring. Neither deigned to speak to me for a good while, but eventually their curiosity got the better of them. "'What are you, then?' asked the one to my right. "'Are you a super?' "'I think so,' I said, but to be honest, I still wasn't sure what a super was. "'What show are you in?' "'Show? I'm not in a show. "'Well, you're not a super, then, are you?' "'He's an ordinary,' the chap on the other side cracked, and they both sniggered. "'You two are supers, then, I take it?' I asked. "'We are,' they replied simultaneously, then waggled their little fingers at one another to avert bad luck.' "'Well, what is a super?' "'What is a super?' the one on my left repeated incredulously. "'Yes, if you don't mind my asking, it's my first day.' "'A super,' the other answered with a patronising simper. "'A super is an artiste, my dear. "'The principals perform their routines. "'We provide the spectacle.' "'Who is going to want to come and see this?' 
his friend asked, a little indignantly, banging the won't detain you with a camp little clang. A great hulk of metal, that's all it is. But imagine when a hundred people are hanging off it, waving their kerchiefs and throwing down streamers, shouting farewell to their loved ones. We will make it magnificent. It dawned on me then that supers was a fancy way of saying that they were not especially important. Supernumerary, in fact. Human scenery. Inhabitants of the very bottom rung of the show business ladder, not counting the outright unemployed, of course, who don't have a rung and have to sit on the floor. And I, poor insignificant Arthur Dando, wasn't even important enough to be able to call myself one of them. Well, that's just... super, I thought to myself. Towards the end of the afternoon, as I broke off from painting to flex my aching fingers a moment, I became aware of a growing hubbub behind me. I looked over my shoulder and saw that the scene dock, which had been echoing and empty all day, was filling up once again with exuberant characters, gentlemen and ladies, all chattering away, greeting one another loudly, exactly as they had the day before. One or two looked up approvingly at the progress of the won't detain you, and hallooed a greeting at a friend they had spotted on the ladders above. Then I saw that all the men who had been working the whole day on the ship were sliding urgently down and grabbing their overcoats before joining the swelling throng below to spill out onto the street and head for the buses and brahams. Silence followed, an eerie, echoing silence, and I was alone. This turned out to be the routine. The fun factory would be a hive of activity all day, and then, come tea time, the place would fill up with assorted performers and supers who would bustle around, chattering and gossiping, until the time came to be carried off to theatre land, leaving me on my own, without so much as a cheero or a see you tomorrow. I would then make my solitary way back to the Bell's house in Streatham, where Clara and Edie would share their supper with me, and then I would either end up playing with Edie and Miss Churchhouse, or, if I was quick enough, please God, escaping upstairs to read one of my penny bluts in peace. By the end of the week, I was heartily fed up with this show business, to be honest, and ready to slink back to Cambridge. My hands were cramped into claws from painting, and the whitewash was so dazzling in the summer sunshine that even after I'd left the cursed won't-detain-you behind for the day, I could still see it as an afterimage burned onto my retinas, little dark portholes floating about in my eye-water. It wasn't just the tedious work, though. After all, if I'd remained at the college for the summer, I'd have been whitewashing the walls of staircases O to T. It was that the fun folk at the so-called fun factory had made me feel about as welcome as Jack the Ripper. Even Lance was better company, and he could go days without speaking to me at all. In due course, I met my landlord, Clara's husband, Charlie Bell, and you couldn't exactly call him a cheerful advocate for a life on the boards either. He was working three shows a night, playing in a Carno sketch called London Suburbia in Balham, then Chiswick, and then Highgate, and so was usually still in bed when I left in the mornings and gone out by the time I got back to the house. One morning, though, he appeared, bleary-eyed, in the doorway of the scullery as Clara, Edie and I were having breakfast, and we were introduced. Perhaps it wasn't the best time to catch him, but he seemed a man of few words. When asked about the previous evening's performances, he ventured that Balham was thin, Chiswick, as good as could be expected, and Highgate, rowdy. Charlie had been with Carno for years and had played the original naughty boy in the sketch Mumming Birds, about which much more later. So I was eager to ask him about the company. Most of all, though, I wanted to hear something, anything, that would make me feel it was worth hanging around for. He shrugged, poured himself a cup of tea. It's a job, I suppose, he said. No better, no worse than plenty of others. I sipped at my own tea, contemplating the miserable prospect of painting another half-acre of metal panel work, and decided that this particular job was not all it was cracked up to be. 
By the end of that gruelling afternoon, muscles aching, paws clogged and ears untroubled by even a half-friendly conversation, I'd pretty much made up my mind to pack it all in. I'd stay long enough to get paid for what I'd done, but that was that. To hell with the blasted fun factory. It was all factory and no fun, it seemed to me. Mr Luscombe would be disappointed, but, well, he'd just have to learn to live with it. Once the mob had left and the hubbub had subsided, I was clambering down from the side of the accursed won't-detainer, ready to wend my weary way back to Streatham, when Alf Reeves came bustling out of his office, wrestling his arms into his jacket as he hurried along. For a moment he looked surprised to see me, but then seemed to place me in his mental scheme of things. "'What are you?' he began, and then, "'Oh, yes, I recall. You have no show to do yet, do you?' "'No, Mr Reeves,' I said. I suppose I must have looked pretty fed up. He cocked his head to one side, thinking. "'Tell you what, would you like to come and see some turns this evening?' I reviewed my plans for the evening, which revolved mostly around trying to escape from playing with a small child and her dolly, and said that I wouldn't mind. "'Wash up, then, quick as you can. I've got to go up the Mile End Road. Bit of business to take care of. Come and see what we're up against, eh?' Outside, Alf was waiting for me by his motor car. I'd seen motor cars close up before, of course, even though they were still something of a rarity on the streets. Several of the more affluent and fashionable young gentlemen at college had purchased them, and very proud they were of them too. It was a gleaming new Ford, which, as the saying went at the time, came in any colour so long as it's black. This one was blue. Reeves fiddled about with some switches or knobs inside the machine, and then emerged with a starting handle which he handed to me. "'You know how to use this, don't you?' "'I'm afraid I don't,' I replied. His face fell. "'Curse it all!' Reeves took the handle back from me and shoved it into a socket low down at the front of the vehicle. "'I was hoping I wouldn't have to do this. I really dislike it. "'He has a kick like a mule if you don't get it just right. "'All right, now watch me, and then next time you'll know what to do, won't you?' Reeves cranked the starter handle round a couple of times and then leapt out of its way as it sprang back, narrowly missing his shins. He glanced up at me, licked his lips, then approached it warily to give it another go. This time he managed to get the engine turning over, and he yanked the handle free and scuttled round to the driver's seat. "'In! In! In!' he cried, and I hurried round to the passenger side and climbed aboard. Reeves let off the handbrake, a gout of smoke guffed out of the machine's rear end, and we rolled away from the little gaggle of gawking street children that had formed. It was, as I say, my first ride in a motor car, and I remember feeling quite vulnerable. Everything on the road seemed to be larger and more robust than our flimsy carriage, which felt like it was going to tip over at every turn, and Alf's style of driving involved rather more near misses than seemed strictly necessary. "'Freddy got you settled at Clara's then, did he?' he shouted, veering round a grocer's cart. "'Yes, Mr Reeves.' "'Oh, I'm Alf. You can call me Alf. You mustn't mind Freddy, you know. He's a nice boy deep down.' "'I'm sure he is,' I said. "'Although it has to be said I wasn't. Not at all.' His father won't let him on the stage at any price, and so naturally that's all he's ever wanted, you see. Before long, mercifully, we were barrelling down the Mile End Road, which was nice and wide and straight and with fewer things we could possibly smash into. This is the Jewish part of town, Alf explained, and I suppose the character of the streets did seem subtly different to those of Camberwell and Streatham. A lot more beards about the place. I think that had something to do with it. You get some very good crowds round here, Alf went on. Do some really good business. Good sense of humour, you Jewish audience. And Jewish comedians are all the rage at the moment, you know. He turned down a side road and pulled up with a jolt opposite a brightly lit building, the front of which was plastered with music hall bills. A queue of people snaked down the steps and along the street, chattering in boisterous mood, waiting to be admitted to the evening performance. This place is called Foresters, Alf said, pulling up on the handbrake. One of the smaller houses, but there's a good bill on tonight. Come on. I stepped out of the motor car and headed for the end of the queue, but Alf took my arm and led me down a passage along the side of the building to the performer's entrance. 
We went up some stairs and into the backstage area where Alf guided me through the throngs of folk making themselves ready, looking for someone in particular. Everyone we passed had a greeting for him, ranging from a deferential evening, Mr. Reeves, to a cheery Alf, until we reached the object of our quest, who held him with a booming Alfred! Hail fellow, well met! Well met indeed! Ah, George, there you are, Alf grinned, shaking the hand of a formidably confident chap of around forty. The man had luxuriant eyebrows and was rather affluently turned out in a well-cut suit with a gold watch chain draped across the front of his checked waistcoat. Can I ask a favour of you, do you think? My dear chap, anything, anything at all, George beamed. This, Alf pulled me closer by my sleeve, is Arthur Dando. He's new with us. Just stick him somewhere where he can watch and keep him safe till I get back, could you? I need to go along to the Paragon. Couple of hours, probably. Hey, I've heard it called that before, said George. But if we've got to go, you've got to go. Arthur, my boy, shall we? He shook my hand briskly and led me to the prompt corner, where he explained to the stage manager that I was his personal friend and that I was to be given the best possible view of the show. I hadn't the first idea who he was at that point, but from the way the stage manager jumped to attention and offered to go and fetch me a beer and a beef sandwich, I gathered that George was a figure of some importance. For the first time since I'd come to London, I was actually beginning to enjoy myself. The show began. From my vantage point in the wings, I could see a swathe of audience down below, Family groups, gangs of office boys, clerks, a few rougher-looking sorts, ruddy-faced, getting a little the worse for wear, and a healthy sprinkling of the dark-clad and swarthily-bearded gentlemen I had seen in the street earlier. What I noticed at once was a much more ribald interaction between stage and crowd than I'd seen before. The audiences back in Cambridge were genteel and restrained by comparison, and the acts on stage were having their work cut out, just gaining the attention of the room. Some of them were just not up to it, and their voices strained reedily upwards like a teacher trying to bring a classroom of rowdy boys to order. A little spectacle held the crowd better. Two chaps dressed like circus gymnasts rode bicycles around the stage in crazy circles, interweaving at breakneck pace. It seemed that they must collide at any moment, cracking their limbs or spilling their brains onto the apron, but they were masters of their routine and exited to the first decent round of applause of the night. Later, a gentleman in evening dress addressed the audience on the subject of a large glass tank full of water, in which a lithe young girl swam like a mermaid, not coming up for air nearly often enough. The man would describe various feats which the mermaid would then perform. "'And now,' the gentleman cried, "'Marina will eat a pie!' And she did, rising to the surface to collect her treat, then sinking down to her knees on the floor of the tank and munching away until the whole thing was gone before allowing herself another breath. The audience were fairly captivated, principally, I suspect, by the fact that she was a lithe young lass not wearing very much and that sooner or later she'd climb out of the tank absolutely soaking wet to take her bow. A curtain came down so that the tank could be carted away by stagehands, and a cockney coster singer of supreme cheeriness cavorted about on the forestage, tweaking his braces with his thumbs and singing about eels. In the meanwhile, I became aware of a slight figure pacing nervously in the wings beside me. His beard and get-up mimicked those of the Jewish contingent in the audience, and I could hear the fellow muttering as he ran through his jokes. I suppose I was peering at him, rather, principally because I had the suspicion that he was much younger than he was trying to appear— when he suddenly turned and glared at me as much as to say, "'What the devil are you looking at?' I stared back at him, and after a moment or two of frosty hostility, he stomped off, muttering to himself. I frowned quizzically at the stage manager, who shook his head in a long-suffering manner. "'This is his first time as a solo turn,' he whispered. "'He was here with Casey's Circus a while back. Sweet talked the boss into giving him a go. 
He's been giving us hell with his music cues and such. Nothing's good enough for him, and he's not happy with the running order like we'd change it just for his majesty. The band struck up with a tune I didn't recognise, but it seemed to strike a chord with the Jewish contingent, and I could see them nudging one another, as if expecting now to see one of their own. What they saw, though, was a slight figure stepping onto the forestage, clearly a slip of a lad, pretending to be older than he was, with a mountain of black crepe piled on his head, and a further waterfall of the stuff cascading from his chin, in a parody of the style favoured by most of their number. "'Cohen's the name,' the youth began. "'Sam Cohen. I was talking the other day to my friend Levy, I was. And do you know what he said to me?' He then proceeded to relate, line by line, a conversation between himself and his absent friend, who didn't seem, from what I could make out, to be the brightest spark. And thus his whole act seemed to be made up of, Then I said such and such, and to which Levy said so and so, so that you had the substance of a slick two-handed patter act, except with just the one hand, if you follow me. His first jokes, such as I could make them out as he was effecting a very nearly incomprehensible Jewish accent, and his voice lacked power, seemed to have originated in America, concerning, as they did, a debt of some $17.50. None of this went down at all well, and it was downhill from there. After a couple of minutes or so, I heard the first loud clang of a penny landing on the stage, followed by another, and then another. Sometimes money arriving on stage during your act is a good sign, but on this occasion you could tell that the coins were being thrown really quite hard. Could have been worse, though. I once saw a singer hit full in the face by a dead cat hurled from the stalls. The lad froze as the full horror of the growing hostility towards him sank in. An orange cannoned off his head, knocking his homemade wig askew, and then more loose change arrived. He peered out over the footlights as if puzzled that these people were unable to perceive the genius in what he was doing. A rain of pennies and half-pennies settled the matter finally, and as he withdrew, I even saw a shilling or two bounce off his back, so desperate were the audience to see it. He rushed into the wings and passed us, his cheeks fairly ablaze with humiliation, ripping his wig and beard off as he fled, and leaving them where they fell. On stage, the Master of Ceremonies was trying to get the audience to calm down for the headline act of the evening. I was suddenly aware of George alongside me, shaking his head philosophically. "'I think they preferred that act when it had two people in it,' he murmured. "'and two different people at that.' "'I nodded, but I was distracted. "'I was sure I'd seen again "'that when the youth flung his props down "'and stormed through the pool of light "'thrown by the lantern on the prompt desk, "'the eyes that flashed defiantly at me "'were purple.' <laughs>